Now through June 29th, you can earn up to four times rewards points on your favorite products throughout the store at Safeway. Shop for items like Coca-Cola products, Deer Park Natural Spring Water, Dannon Light and Fit Yogurt, Mott's Original Applesauce, Heinz Ketchup, and McCormick Spices. And earn up to four times bonus reward points to use for discounts on gas or groceries. Visit Safeway.com or download the Safeway For You app to earn your reward points today. Offer valid through June 29th. See store for more details. Nature has developed a lot of natural defenses. Take it from a little bug like me. I've pretty much seen them all. Porcupine's got quills. Snake's got venom. And me, I got camouflage. Nature's always finding ways to support life, like elderberries. Nature's Way extracted the best of the berry, tossed in vitamin C and D and zinc, and put them into a yummy immune-supporting gummy. Nature's Way Sambucus Gummies. Powerful immune support inspired by nature. Nature's Way. Welcome to Garden Views, interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone to Garden Views and this episode we have a special guest with us. His name is Louis O'Connor. He's the founder and the principal of Strategic Metals Investing, or just invest. We are, uh, they are the only industry supplier in the world to offer private investors the option to purchase and profit from owning strategic metals. The investment play is exactly the same paradigm as investing in precious metals instead of the investor, uh, instead the investor is purchasing strategic metals. Probably need to say at this point that this is not a financial show, so everybody out there shouldn't take financial advice from me, and and nor should they necessarily from the guests. They should check with their own advisors for financial, tax, and legal information. And in any event, Strategic Metals has outperformed gold um, by fifty eight percent, the FTSC one hundred by three percent, and the S and P five hundred by one hundred twelve percent consistently for the past five years, with a hundred and seventy five percent average return during the same period. And they believe that right now in North America, the only obstacle to investors profiting from owning rare earths is that they don't know they can. In their European-based company, and therefore they're providing North American clients uh, diversity and a portfolio with much-needed geographic diversification as well as asset types. So thank you very much for coming on the show. And how are you doing this evening? Very well, thank you, Jeff. Good, happy to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me. Sure. Where are you coming to us from? Well, I'm in Europe, as you said. Uh, I'm in Ireland, in Tipperary, in Ireland. Oh, very good. I knew I detected an accent there. I wasn't sure if I could place it or not. Um, I always get Irish and Scottish confused. I'm sure that outrages both people in Ireland and Scotland about that. Well, us not so bad, but if you mix us up with the English, we might be a bit more upset. The, the Scottish and the Irish are, are both Celts, so our, our accents are very similar, actually. So, thank you. See, I don't, I don't get it confused with the British. <laughs> I do, admittedly, get Australian and South African confused at times as well. But yeah, I'm American, you know. We, we, we do. We we have trouble with our own accents here in America. You know. Yeah. Well, there you go. They're from the Midwest. They're from California. What's up with that? Anyway, so uh, enough about that. Let, let's hear a little bit more about you. So what is your origin story? Okay. Um, so, I'm, I mean, I, I am Irish, um, 
but I've recently returned to Ireland actually um, in the last three years specifically for this business. I needed to be European based because the vault, we'll get into it more when we chat, but the, the storage facility and the vault and our offices in, in Frankfurt in Germany. But um, yeah, so I'm born in Dublin, but I lived in Germany for 10 years. Also lived in Latin America for 15 years uh, in Panama and Central America. Um, entrepreneur, um, you know, I've sort of bought property, started in Ireland. I bought my first property at 23 years of age and then bought property in Germany and Panama. Um, have been involved in real estate mostly, um, some agriculture, uh, precious metals, some crypto, and now the strategic metals, which we're about to talk about. Right. So long-term uh, listeners of this show and the show that it spun off from know that we don't typically cover financial matters, but this show does cover a lot of tech, science, and a lot of legal matters. Uh, although if you are a long-term listener and know that this show sprung from Garden of Doom, you know that we at some point did cover uh, alternatives to money currency and golds and, and other metals like that with our friend Dave Selko. And uh, on Garden Views, we've had uh, guests on cryptocurrency uh, and you know some other similar items as well. So this fit right in. And uh, I saw your uh, bio on the... the podcastguest.com list and it was talking about strategic metals and which is great because that's what attracted me you and, and it is uh you know the you gave me some suggested questions because obviously you're used to uh being a guest on shows with people who probably don't know what they're talking about and what you're going to talk about and i am one of those so my first question is exactly the first one that you pose which is what exactly are strategic metals okay good question well um, strategic metals is an umbrella term um, for, for rare earth metals, but they have a number, even though the same metals are used in many different applications, they have a number of different meanings. Like uh, people call them also, people in technology call them technology metals. So we touch them, see them, feel them every day. Jeff. For example, there's 12 rare earth metals or precious metals in one smartphone. There's gold in a smartphone, there's silver, but there's another 10 that are strategic metals that you would, people wouldn't normally know about. And basically what they are, though, is they're the, um, they're the downstream raw materials that ultimately become uh, trillions of dollars in upstream GDP. They're in phones, they're in all modern technology, electric cars, wind, solar, uh, buildings, transportation, energy, you name it. Um, literally... They're the backbone of manufacturing in the 21st century. And we touch them, see them, feel them every day. We just maybe don't realize it or don't pay much. You know, I mean, you hold a phone in your hand. I mean, there's a lot of different components to it. Um, and, and, you know, tw there, are, there, are, there are 12 precious metals in every, uh, 12 or 13 in every smartphone. Yeah, I hear a lot about cobalt, for example, and then we hear about lithium batteries, which I don't think lithium is a metal itself, but I guess those batteries depend on certain metals uh, to function. I'm not exactly sure if that, that's correct or not, but uh, I mean, is cobalt one of the metals that we're talking about? Uh, no, we the one, those, the cobalt and, and stuff like that would be where the ones we focus on are the ones where there's... Um, a limited supply, increasing demand, China monopolizes the market. Um, 
So they're more um, the rare earth metals, which are um, sort of, you know, as I said, the, the supply chain is, 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 is um, limited and subject to disruption. Um, the, the other metals, you know, like gold, silver, even um, copper are sort of abundantly available. Not to say that they're not a, a bad investment in any way. But these particular metals we focus on, China pretty much produces 90% of them. And the West, Europe, and the U.S. waits in line for what China will sell nowadays after they've uh, satisfied their own. Uh, so the ones we're talking about are gallium, germanium, hafnium, indium, dysprosium, praseodymium, and neodymium. So probably, you know, most people wouldn't be familiar with them, but, you know, there's no reason why they can't become familiar with them. And that's that's what we're here today and, and what, what our website is all about as well to educate people a little bit on what they are. Yeah. I've never heard about any of those. Those, those could, you know, you could put them into the, the Marvel cinematic universe and deem, you know, uh, something stronger than vibranium or adamantium. And I, you know, I believe you. So that's pretty interesting. So how do, like, what's the strategy? I know you don't want to give away your IP or anything like that, but how, how does strategic metals pick what, what they're going to invest in? Okay, so um, no, I mean, look, we we've nothing. It's all about show and tell, as far as we're concerned. We we have a very very good product, and just as you mentioned in the intro, the only obstacle to investors making a profit from these metals is not that they don't go up in value because they do, not that they're um, it's not safe and secure. It is. I mean, one, you have to do your due diligence, but once you do, you'll you'll see that it's a a very legitimate sort of business in operating since 1999. But the only obstacle mostly is people just don't know they can buy them. People are interested in rare earths um, and they, you know, up till very recently, the only option maybe was to invest in somebody who was mining. But what we actually offer is people can purchase these raw materials and physically own them. Just same paradigm as buying gold or silver. You physically own the asset and hold it um you know uh, we recommend three to five years but it's entirely up to the the client and they have been very profitable you know for the last 10 years or so no reason why that shouldn't continue to be but the um you know supply and demand are in charge they're not correlated at all to the stock market they're purely driven by by supply and demand so if somebody is owning um uh, you know, let's be you know, s- several pounds or whatever of, you know, th- three different metals. I-, I mean, I imagine that you all actually hold them somewhere in a, in a storage facility for the person that you're not going to ship a ton of, you know, different kinds of metals over to someone. And I mean, I, sp- I suppose that's a possibility, but most people, their homes are not set up for that. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it, is it the same as like when you buy gold from an investment house it's just a, it's like a it's almost like a brokerage house holding your stock for you yeah exactly i mean it's a good point i'm glad you sort of zeroed in on that because um the only end buyer for these metals are industry industry buyers there's no point in you or me having as you said a hundred thousand dollars worth of gallium or three or four metals in a safe out the back here because how are we going to liquidate them right, right. so i suppose the core thing that people need to know about us is um, we only have one product. You know, we're not an investment house or investment advisors. Our core business since 1999 
is we're based in Frankfurt in Germany, and we we we. Uh, it, it sounds like a paradox, but actually, what's most important about us is not the investment side. It's what we do on a daily basis. Eighty percent of our activities are we buy metals from producers, mostly in China, but other parts of the world as well, and then we resell them to industry buyers. We've more than two thousand industry buyers in 70 different countries now it's only because of that's our core business that we can offer what you guys like to say in america we have a side hustle and our side hustle is that we offer private we invite private investors to participate in an industry they wouldn't normally have access to the only reason they have access to is because we're a bona fide industry supplier so we're inviting investors to participate in the industry we have a vault in frankfurt uh, it was a bunker during World War II and then during the Cold War, two levels below ground, one level above. Um, we have over 200 metric tons of inventory there. It's the largest inventory of rare earths anywhere in the world outside of China. Um, and we store there for industry buyers and also for private investors. Now, you made a, a very good point there. You hinted at that anyway, Jeff, is... Um, we recommend you store with us, right? For a couple of reasons, I'll come back to that in a minute. But at the end of the day, when somebody buys the metals, they own them. If they want to move them to Alabama or Singapore or Zurich or wherever, it's up to them. They own them. But all they're going to do is increase their costs because they have to pay for transportation and probably some, some taxes. But more importantly, if you move these metals, the chain of custody of these metals are very important. For example, one of our clients, at some on some occasions, is the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, there's three quarters of a ton of rare earths in an F-35 fighter jet. The U.S. Department of Defense will never buy raw materials from an unknown source, right? right? Or they won't buy raw materials if the chain of custody is not intact. So, when our clients store with us, although although they own them, they're still in the custody of a bona fide industry supplier. So technically, right. the chain of custody is intact. So if you store them with us, the liquidation, I mean, you can liquidate them in a day, you know, or three to four working days if you really need to, because right. the chain of custody is intact, whether we sell them to Siemens or Apple or, you know, U.S. Department of Defense, it doesn't matter. They will not query once they've been in our custody. So that's why we recommend you keep them with us. And again, if you move them, it, let's say you, you move them and come back to us in three years and you want to liquidate them. Now, we'll still liquidate them, but probably they have to be retested because technically they've been out of the industrial chain of custody. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, they'd have to be tested for their integrity and, uh, you know, they're, they're basically a, a reseller. Or, you know, they'd be considered used until proven otherwise. It's not like exactly. a car where once it's used, it's used. But I get it. It's like when you deposit a dollar in the bank and you ask for your dollar back, you're not going to get the same dollar back. You're just going to get another dollar or four quarters or whatever. But if you deposit $200 million in the bank and you want your $200 million back, your bank probably doesn't have $200 million to give you. And they may need a few business days to get you those $200 million because they guarantee, you know, whatever the regulations are, they guarantee they have whatever, 10%, you know, of all deposits in cash reserves. But the cash reserves, chances are, aren't in the branch down from, you know, yeah. your home um well, well thankfully we're not like bankers so <laughs> you we we um 
you know, we, 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 the, the investors own the assets and, you know, we, we, we physically have them there and, uh, they can't liquidate them actually on the, on the so, day. So they do. So physically they are sheets of metal or blocks or whatever the cubic tonnage is, is actually physically there unless sold to, uh, is it when it's sold, it's just automatically replaced Is is that sort of how your, uh, your inventory works? Progressive protects more than just your home and car. You could save when you bundle your motorcycles, ATVs, boats, and RVs. Doesn't that sound good? Like the sound of your boat cruising along the intercoastal. And there's the sound of the prop hitting a really big rock. And now the sound of waves because the engine stopped. But you know what does sound good? You're covered with Progressive. So bundle all your vehicles and home in one place and save with the multi-policy discount. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Yeah, well, we, um, like, let, let me put it this way. On the industrial side of the business, we turn over about $100 million a year on the industrial side, not the investment yeah. side. Mm -hmm. But we only offer, we, we don't have more than 25% uh, uh, of our inventory is owned by investors. Most of it is, is either owned by us or it's um, it's also you know, in the process of, of a sale, it's either being ordered for somebody or it's on in the way out. So, so the investors, somebody say invest 10,000 or 50,000, five different metals, those metals are there. Well, it, it takes about 30 to 60 days for them to be delivered. But once they're delivered, they're physically there in a, in a barrel or a box, or, you know, some of them are metal form and some of them are oxide, which are powdered form. So it just, you know, depends on, on how the industry supplies them. But no, they're they're physically there. The clients can come and visit any time and see them, touch them, and feel them. But we just recommend you store with us just one for um, you know, so there's no additional transportation costs or taxes, and two for uh, for for high. They're very very liquid. So if somebody wants to liquidate, they can liquidate them very quickly if they're in our storage facility. But but there has to be moments in time where you've sold a lot of the actual metals, and obviously you go into the the inventory, and so technically somebody's investment materials might be in that cell. You just know that you have more incoming to replace it, or is it never? I mean, as you grow, as you grow this investment side of the business, I mean, I I'd assume perhaps wrongly that that would be the case that there could be moments in time where you have less inventory than you have investor. IOUs because the sales side has been successful, um, or it's perhaps you have more in inventory than you need. Um, you know, so there's an ex an excess, or or am I just way off? Is it so regular and so scientific that you always have, whatever the outgo is, the income is identical or more? Well, it is. Yeah, I mean, look, the vaults in Frankfurt in Germany, you know, highly sort of regulated country, right in the middle of the EU. Um, less, but as I said, 25% or less of our inventory is investor owned. The other 75% is our own inventory. So the thing is when the investors take delivery, they have batch numbers with chain of custody, with analysis report, with purity levels. So, um, you know, we, we, we don't, unless it's only when the investor wants to liquidate their assets, will we sell their assets. Uh, but you're so right, there is, uh, there is. There is high turnover. There is high turnover there on a monthly basis, but less than you know twenty five percent of what's there is investor owned. So it's not. Uh, plus, 
we can order, you know, most industry buyers, you know, let's say somebody has a, um, I don't know, they, they make medical devices in Japan or Liechtenstein, they have a factory of 500 people and they need a steady flow of Indian. Well, they would be ordering well in advance anyway. And the lead time generally is, well, before COVID, it was 30 to 60 days. It's now up to about 90. So, you know, they order plenty of time, plenty of, you know, time in advance. So, Okay, I think I understand what you're saying then. So the, the, per, the, the person's investment actually is segregated. It's not for sale until the investor says, I want you to sell it. And then it, then it goes out of that 25% into the 75%, but it's still there 25%. And whatever the difference is in the price, hopefully higher from when they bought it, that's, that's their profit. Uh, you know, I, I imagine there's a brokerage fee or something, um, in there, but, uh, so, yeah, so your next, uh, you know, I, I liked how you told me it was a good question. It was your question, but I'm going to stick to your questions. Hopefully they're all good questions. How can investors own strategic metals? I mean, I know one version is you can go through your company. Is is Are, are you alone in the market or are, are there other ways people can do it? I mean, I imagine you could form a relationship with a mine and say, I, I want to buy it. And after they laugh at you, you, you could tell them, you know, I'm a evil James Bond villain and I have a, uh, an island in international waters and it's called jeff zikistan that's my my straw man bad country jeff zikistan for me um and then maybe they'd sell me some or whatever um but you know uh, how can investors own strategic metals well just as you said i mean you you know companies like apple and volkswagen and ford you know would go directly you know to suppliers i mean they're buying in metric tons right but most people, most industry buyers don't have the capital for that and are not, they're not buying that huge amount that they can go directly to a producer. So at this moment in time, I can say this with certainty, we're the only industry supplier in the world that offers private investors access to rare earth metals. That might change in the future. Um, there's about 20, 25 brokers like us in Europe. There's probably 20, 25 in the US, maybe more, maybe less. But at this moment in time, most of them are just focusing on, you know, pretty much what they do, which is buying and selling metals within the industry. So at the moment, for private investors, we're the only, we're the only one out there actually doing this. Now, you can buy small amounts on eBay and Amazon, but you know, that's just sort of hobbyists and, you know, you buy something right. on eBay, you've no way of knowing the purity level and no industry bar would be interested in anything like that. You know, um, we guarantee people are buying industrial grade, sort of high value gallium or hafnium that can be liquidated to an industry bar at any time. And it's only because of our, you know, 30 years in the business that we know, for example, what purity levels are needed for an F-35 or, you know, for a permanent magnet for an electric car. We know what the industry level that's needed, and that's what we offer to the investors. So the liquidation can be quick and immediate as well. Is this market regulated at all? Like in the, in the U.S., is it regulated by the SEC? No, well, precious metals, which they, you know, strategic metals come under the same, you know, umbrella term as well. Um both in Europe and the US, it's not a regulated industry, which is can be is a very, very good thing or but also a very, very, you know, bad thing. But you know, anybody can buy and sell metals. 
Um, that's why, you know, you have to be very, very careful, do your due diligence, particularly, um, you know, with industrial metals. Um, you've got to, you know, look, if I was just a guy in Ireland who, you know, was telling you, oh, you know, if you give me your money, I'll buy the metals from China, and then in a few years we'll sell them to whoever, that wouldn't work. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of red flags in those three sentences alone. You, you can, you know, there's about seven things must be in place in order for this to be, for the transaction to conclude satisfactory for the investor. Uh, most importantly, one is you're buying from an industry supplier um, that should have their own storage facility. And that can give you a list, if you ask, of potential buyers of, you know, of, of invest of, of uh, industry buyers who they will liquidate your assets to. So, so um, yeah, you'd have to be super, super careful. Um, but, you know, again, thankfully, people can do their due diligence. They can come to the vault in Germany. They can touch it, see it, and feel it, you know. Right. But they don't have, uh, but uh, you wouldn't have to qualify someone as a sophisticated investor under blue sky laws here. And uh, it's it sort of, it, it's egalitarian that it's open to anyone, just like sort of crypto was. But, you know, you, you're taking the risk. And if you're an investor, you, you need to do your homework on yourself, your company, or, you know, uh, you know, the competitors or other companies out there. But there's no, there's no, uh, rare metals investment police out there. No. No, no. You, you, you're, you're the policeman as well. <laughs> you're the, you might be the client and the policeman, and you should be. You know, you have to watch. You have to be your own vanguard, I guess. All right. So, I mean, I think we touched on it before, but uh, how can investors profit? Uh, you know, beyond buying for less than it's sold for. Um, say that again. How do you mean? I'm not sure I understand. Well, your your third question was how can investors profit? I was trying to make the question not so obviously yours, but we'll just stick with yours. How can investors profit? Okay, well, what people, I mean, I don't no reason they would know this, but what people don't really know is that, um, like, let's, you, you, I know your audience is North American, so I'll, I'll sort of answer it, directing it in in that direction. Is it the nineteen eighties? The U.S. was the largest producer of rare earths. Um, and what happened in the late 80s is China um, sort of realized, I think China understood before Europe and before the U.S. that these raw materials were going to become the backbone of manufacturing in the, in the 21st century. They were looking about 25 years ahead. They saw what was coming with technology. And China basically... I mean, number one, they're sitting on 50% of the world's reserves. Now, they're called rare earths, Jeff, but they're not all that rare. There's plenty of them in the U.S., plenty in Australia, in Africa. Uh, the ja Japanese are about to start mining the seabed for rare earths. What makes them complicated and expensive is they don't occur naturally. They have to be extracted. They're all uh, usually a byproduct of another raw material, so they have to be extracted separated and then refined that's what makes them expensive but what the chinese did in the late 80s early 90s is they sort of they moved all the, the refining to china and that the u.s government at the time made, made a decision to allow them to do it mountain pass in california was producing about 60 percent of the world's rare earths and they thought well why don't we let the chinese They'll make, you know, these, this, this rare earths, it's messy, you know, it's complicated. Why don't we let the Chinese do it on the cheap? 
and they can sell these raw materials to our manufacturers then inexpensively. And that's what they did. But I think what happened was basically nobody really saw what was coming with technology. And it's just, you know, you know, got out of hand, really. And now China is responsible for 90%. So the reason people can profit is that demand is, is increasing. You know, we've got the energy transition now that's, you know, electric car, solar power, wind power, um, technology, you know, new devices all the time. So we've demand increasing and we have China controlling the supply. And just to give you an idea, like if you bought um, $100,000 worth of rare earths five years ago, you'd be up 34% a year every year for the last five years. So they are, or they have been profitable. Now that dynamic, that supply demand disparity, it's not going to be solved anytime soon. It's going to take Europe and the US another 10 or 15 years to wean its dependence off China, to, to produce, you know, in America, to produce in Europe. One, labor costs are more expensive, you know, just to do it, probably more sustainably than China, that's more expensive. So either way, we're looking at, you know, even though we might have, you know, new new uh, supply chains, it's going to drive the prices up just because of the cost. Because you're already a supplier, but you're also a buyer, do you explore, do you have your own teams that do sort of exploration, research and development and look for other mines? Or do you, do you just seek the existing mines, uh, or I, I don't know if mines is the right world, but where, wherever the resources are harvested, do you, do you seek the existing ones or do you have, are you like you know, the oil comes like Exxon's always sending people offshore here and to this country there, to a new valley here. Do you, do you do both or, or what's your strategy? No, no, we, we just buy directly from producers, as you said, from, you know, from mines, from miners, but, um, as I said, you know, most of them are in China. There will be, there is Australia, the second largest producer outside of China is Linus in Australia. Um, we're going to see there's a few, you know, new mine expeditions, maybe not the right word, in the U.S. We're going to hear of more, because basically the U.S. and Europe and Japan has realized we can no longer be completely dependent on China. In fact, while we're on the subject, China announced in the last two weeks they plan to ban the export of rare earths to USA, Europe, and in Japan in retaliation for the West banning some technology on super uh, computer chips getting to China. So we've a bit of a trade war, a bit of geopolitical tensions going on. China holds the, 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 the ace up their sleeve in terms of rare earths. So uh, they, the last time they did that was 2011 um, in a territorial dispute with Japan, and we saw prices sort of, you know, 5x, 10x in the space of a few months. I'm not saying it'll happen again, but th this geopolitical strategy is real. It's not just a sales thing to say, oh, China has them all. And, you know, the reality is China is the dominant market leader in rare earths. Rare earths are critical to every nation's economic prosperity and increasingly military capabilities. And the US and Europe and Japan have just woken up to the fact that we've let, we've let China get, you know, just go way, way too far with this. Now we've got to do something about it. And that's why it's profitable for the next five or 10 years to own rare earths because, um, 
you know, although it's only a billion dollar industry, they, they, they ultimately become trillions of dollars in, in GDP, you know, so they, they sort of, there's real leverage there with the rare earths. That's why China is planning to ban them. I see. Hmm. Interesting. And I imagine that uh, unrest in certain regions only increases uh, the value because the supply is the same the, 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 or lessened, uh, but the demand is the same or increasing. So, uh, Finding great candidates to hire can be like, well, trying to find a needle in a haystack. Sure, you can post your job to some job board, but then all you can do is hope the right person comes along. Which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash post. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its powerful technology identifies people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply to your job. You get qualified candidates fast. So while other companies might deliver a lot of hay, ZipRecruiter finds you what you're looking for. The needle in the haystack. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free at ZipRecruiter.com slash post. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash post. ZipRecruiter.com slash post. You know, I mean, not that anyone wants this to happen, but tensions in, you know, around Taiwan, that, that, that might increase, you know, the demand would stay the same, but the supply might get choked more. Yeah, no, you've, you've, you've maybe sort of inadvertently zeroed right in on like when you mentioned taiwan what people don't realize is why is taiwan so important the reason it is is the taiwanese semiconductor manufacturing company produces 82 percent sorry 92 percent of the world's computer chips the best computer chips come out of asia 92 percent come from taiwan the other eight percent from south korea that's why strategically it's so important if that supply chain was disrupted because of a war. I mean, every industry in the world would be hit. I mean, the car industry would be hit for 200 billion right away. Um, that's why it's strategically important. Now, it's worth going to war over. 92% of the best computer chips in the world are coming from the Taiwanese uh, semiconductor uh, manufacturing company. Now, here's the kicker though, right? China relies on Taiwan to supply them with these superconductors and these computer chips. So they import them. But China supplies the raw materials. Hafnium would be one of them. So if China decided to restrict the quotas of hafnium, um, we're going to see the prices skyrocket. You know, So there's, there's all these little geopolitical dynamics at, at play. And, and, you know, it's not really economical to China. It's a geopolitical strategy that was formed, you know, 20, 25 years ago, and it's come to fruition. They wanted to dominate in rare earths, and they do. Well, their economic policy and their political and their military policies are all basically the same. They're, they're one and the same, which is sort of why they sort of drive straight ahead all the time. And the rest of us maybe don't so much. I'm not going to talk about the morals of that, then there's pros and cons to everything. Um, all right. So it sounds like it's a relatively low risk, you know, at least until we develop some sort of a free energy from, you know, I, I don't know, helium three or something that, that uh, I've been hearing about forever. And then yesterday learned from a 
law professor of all places that, oh yeah, everyone knows that helium-3 can, can provide all this energy, but nobody has any idea how to make it provide all of this energy, which is, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big detail. Um, all right, we talked about supply and demand. Um, we didn't, you addressed it, but uh, since you put it as a separate question, I'm just going to uh, parrot one of your questions to you so that you can hit it directly if it's different than what you've already said, and that is gold versus strategic metals. Yeah, well, just, I mean, funny enough, even um, even recently, like some of the rare earths actually have gone down in value a little bit in the last few months. China stopped restricting or stopped stockpiling, and the, the industry just demand has tapered off a little bit momentarily. So in the last few months, gold has sort of gone up in value, and some of ours have gone down. But if you look at the five-year trajectory, you know, um, Rare earths sort of still outperform gold and silver. Um, yeah, as I said, about 34% a year every year in the last five years. And in the last three years, even higher, 50% a year. And the reason for that is, for the most part, um, gold has an extrinsic perceived value, whereas rare earths have an intrinsic value. They're, they're critically needed in, in phones, computers. Uh, TVs, electric cars. I mean, I suppose it might sound like an exaggeration, and it is a little bit, <laughs> if you'll allow me. But if all the gold in the world disappeared tomorrow, it really wouldn't make a huge difference. If all the rare earths disappeared, you know, airplanes wouldn't fly, cars wouldn't drive, you know, modern buildings wouldn't exist, and we wouldn't have any of this technology we use. We wouldn't have solar power. We wouldn't have wind. Again, they're the the backbone of manufacturing in the 21st century. And, you know, people talk a lot about, say, the energy transition, right? Energy transition metals and this transition to low-carbon economies. But the truth is what we're talking about is technology transition. We're always talking about, you know, when, when we invented the wheel, that was a new technology. and We transitioned from one technology to another. Then we went to the, you know, from the horse to the wheel to the car. So... What's happening at the moment is another technology transition, and these are the raw materials that fuel that. Nothing, practically nothing we use in our modern life um, would work without rare earth metals. Simple when, fact. When you said earlier, if all the gold in the world disappeared, it wouldn't make a difference. I mean, I assume that you weren't referring to, you know, people wouldn't have gold watches or wedding bands anymore. They could, you know, they, they could get silver or platinum, but the, the but gold is also used in industrial things. So what would replace the gold in, in that case? Yeah, no, what, what I mean is, I mean, I prefaced what I said, that it's a slight exaggeration, but the point that I'm making is that gold isn't intrinsic. I mean, look, we could do without jewelry, right? Mm -hmm. um, but could we do without all these modern devices, you know, and how we work and how we communicate? It's a sort of a, it's an analogy, but there's a bit of you know a bit of humor and a bit of um, exaggeration in it. But what I'm I suppose the, like for example, there is gold in a smartphone, right? But there's also another ten rare earths, and these are the ones I'm talking about. So gold wouldn't be used as much, silver a bit more in industrial use. There are uses, but these ones have applications in everything. They're in rods for nuclear reactors. They're in you know alloys in jet engines. They're you know, they're a huge part now of, you know, the 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 the, the, the space um, exploration is between now and 2050 becoming a fully fledged 
space industry and they're critically needed in the engines for the rockets and the technology for rockets so they're much more I suppose the better way to say it is they're much more intrinsic um than gold or silver you know not to say you know it's it's a little bit of a you know a humorous sort of a take on it but no you you are right i mean gold and and silver do have some industrial uses as well but not as much as the as rare earths okay so the, i mean there isn't a substitute for industrial gold it's just that they're not uh, industrial gold is not as important as uh, the, these other metals that i can't even possibly try to say their names the miniums a bunch of miniums um all right um all right so what would someone's exit strategy be and and what are the what are the risks what could go wrong okay so um they're purely driven by supply and demand and i mentioned there let's say you need indium to to swipe that you couldn't swipe your your phone without indium possible in the next few years another technology a better technology than indium might exist and so demand might taper off so you just have to you know if you do decide you want to take a closer look and investigate further you just have to remember that it's purely supply and demand so supply and demand is in charge and um, the good news is demand is huge and increasing all the time supply is limited subject to disruption right at this moment in time they say that the demand for the energy transitions metals won't peak until the 2040 so we have a 15 to 20 year run there just before it even peaks right um um exit strategy we suggest a long term play i mean medium to long term we 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 suggest to our clients look we don't want really day traders um you know coming and sort of thinking you can buy and sell metals i mean sometimes they go up in value i mean one, one of our metals went up 180% last year right um but we recommend 3 to 5 years if not longer 10 years even so your your strategy and your exit strategy is a, is a 3 to 5 year play what i mean i i imagine that there must be minimum investment amounts and maybe even maximum investment amounts uh Ten thousand dollars is the minimum, and you can buy, you know, several kilos of one metal, or you can buy four or five metals. And uh, in, in that price, you can diversify, you know, your portfolio. Um, there's no, um, there's no limit on the amount somebody wants to buy. But if somebody's, you know, coming in with a big, big purchase, um, you know, we'd really need to sit down and negotiate and. Or not negotiate, but but lay a foundation for how long they plan to stay in. You know what was the you know what was their their full intentions. Just so everybody's on the same sheet of music, you know, because um, you might be getting into metric tons. Then you know, right? You might have to get someone's coming in with I don't know five billion dollars and they want to buy it. You've got to buy five. You've got to find five billion dollars worth of stuff oh, yeah. um, you wouldn't be able to do something like that i mean it, it's it, it is only it's a it's a billion dollar industry but i mean it does become trillions in gdp but but no i mean you would nobody would come to us for the like for even the likes of sort of you know say apple and and siemens for example they they wouldn't come to they'll go direct to producers most big manufacturers nowadays are looking to do joint ventures with producers that wouldn't be they'd be too big for us you know okay. and anybody with that sort of wealth would go directly to a producer anyway 
Okay, I, I, I see. I understand. All right, so you, you sort of self-govern on on what's too big for 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 you all to handle. All right, um, all right. You're not a bank. It's not really regulated. You have security, uh, but what what kind of confidentiality is there? I'm Jeff Zikistan, uh, but somehow I get tied up in something unfairly, of course, in the United States, and somebody gets a twelve million dollar judgment against me. Just so happens, you know, they want discovery on my assets, and I don't necessarily feel that they deserve information on all of my assets, you know, especially those that are outside of the United States. Um, you know, is it like Switzerland where, you know, unless it's terrorism or something like the, the, you know, it's, you know, buttoned up or what, what, what are the, what are the privacy rights? Just, just imagine me as the worst actor, but not tripping anything, national security, which would, you know, uh, exempt one from yeah. you know, the, the strictest disclosure requirements. Okay, well, you know, a good a good portion of our, you know, U.S. clients or clients outside the EU do purchase and hold them, you know, as a part of their asset protection strategy. And, you know, it's not hide and seek. It's more show and tell. But, you know, as, as one, you know, I have a, a, a client who um, is a doctor in the U.S. and um, who was selling his, his uh, practice and... He wanted to diversify some of, uh, you know, his 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 sale, the money he made from the sale, getting ready for retirement, and he was buying property and other assets overseas. And he said, "I'm not hiding anything." He said, "But if somebody decides to sue me in a year from now for no reason, the way he explained it to me was, he said, let's say somebody wanted to sue him. Usually, the lawyer will go." Uh, sure, no problem. I'll work, you know, pro bono at you know twenty five percent, right? Except if you tell the lawyer, well, the assets are in Germany or in Belize, then he go, okay. Well, if you give me twenty five thousand up front, then I'll I'll do it. So basically, it just makes them a bit harder to get at. They're not hidden, um, but also the purchase is governed by you know the the vault and the the business is in Germany, so the German. You know the laws and the rules of Germany apply. So, uh, all I would say is it's it's a it's a good form of asset protection. It doesn't hide anything, but it certainly makes when you have assets in another jurisdiction, anybody who wants to seize those assets has to deal with the local authorities and the local laws. So it makes them harder to get at. You know, is there ever like could they force? your company to let's someone has a they've they've garnished my assets let's just say they've gone that far and they've enrolled the judgment in germany and whatever could they order your company to sell them or or would it just be that they said well you know he's got two metric tons of you know adamantium come get it you know come take it we'll open up we'll open up the vault for you at you know 6 30 bring your own security bring your own you know gigantic armored car and get it or could they say now the you know strategic investments you you need to uh, you need to sell that amount and but turn it over to you know the marshal in, in, instead of to Doctor Evil Jeff Zikistan. Well, they'd have to go through the German court system, you know, which would be you know would take some time. But actually, you know, the interesting thing as well is U.S. citizens do not have to report commodities held, and I'm you know I'm Irish. You can't take tax advice from me but i was informed by a u.s tax advisor about this that 
Um, you U.S. citizens have to declare bank accounts and cash held overseas, but commodities like timber, precious metals, they don't have to report. So if somebody owns them and doesn't report them, nobody knows they're there anyway. Yeah, I, I don't know if that holds up in discovery or, or or not. I am a lawyer, but I've never had to deal with that before. So I'll I'll I'll, I'll stick out of that one. But that that is interesting. Um, you know, I guess maybe relying on the tax law and saying, yeah, who knows? Uh, maybe that's a question for a securities lawyer one day here on, on the state side, but interesting, but it definitely, uh, definitely an ocean, even not even an ocean, just another country does make it trickier. Um, and I guess that then there, there's EU rules and I guess German rules, but I guess it would be German. You said it would be German law that they right, have their right. own independent sovereign laws, not necessarily uh, subject to the EU or, or not dictated by the EU. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's a little bit like states here. States can have different exemption and, and attachment laws. I'm speaking out loud. I don't, I don't expect you to opine on laws of individual states in the United States. Um, all right. What didn't I ask you that I should have asked you or what didn't I ask you, but you want to tell us about that? I, I didn't uh, set it up for you to give, uh, uh, give, give us that information. Sorry. I think, I think we covered it. I think you covered just about everything, Jeff. Um, I suppose the only thing I, I would say is just uh, if anybody is interested, you know, at any time, is that um, the way to view this, the only the reality of what this is, is, is again, we're not a financial advisors or we don't have 10 different products we offer people. The most important thing about us is that we are, uh, our core business is we buy and sell metals. And because of that, we can then offer private investors the opportunity to participate. If that wasn't our core business, this wouldn't be safe. So the way to view this is, I mean, it is an investment. Basically what it is, is you're participating in the industry of rare earths. You're, 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 you have access to buy authentic, you know, industrial grade raw materials and do your homework. And, and we can also liquidate them for you. So, you know, that, that really just, in a nutshell, if you will, covers it. But, um, you know, there's plenty of due diligence to do, and I can help people with that as well. You know, in the U.S., there's companies like um, Red Flag Group and Refinitiv, I think. In Europe, we have North Data, and in Germany, we have Bundesanzeiger. So these are like portals um, uh, or even search engines, might be a better word, where people can, you know, for a small these are the portals attorneys would use to do diligence on U.S. companies or German companies. So we can provide some links to them and people can sign up. And for, you know, less than $100, they can have access to financial records, annual statements, assets, liabilities. Did they ever have a bankruptcy? Do they have patents, you know, tax returns? So, so people can actually... You know, if they know their way around a little bit on, on online or, you know, have an attorney do it for them, they can do their due diligence. I know that we didn't uh, agree to talk about this previously. I don't think it's a gotcha, but you did mention earlier that you were uh, that you were in crypto for a little bit. Um, what's your take on crypto now? I mean, there's been a lot of volatility in the crypto market. Again, the same caveat to everyone out there. This is not a financial advice show. We can't get financial advice. We can't get tax advice. We can't give you legal advice. Uh, this is just for information and uh, entertainment purposes. But, uh, you know, what, if you're comfortable saying, what, what, what's your take on crypto these days? 
I I'm I'm not buying at the moment, but um I still would buy in the future. Um you know, I first bought crypto in 2017 and you know, I made some I did make some money and but I I sold it all um for other reasons, you know, other investments and I you know, I, I knew at the time I, I met somebody actually in Panama, Central America, um, who invited me up to a Bitcoin conference in Miami. And, I, you know, I got pretty well educated. And I, what I really learned was, um, or at least what, what works for me, is that if you do buy crypto, you know, hold on tight. You need to have the stomach for it. But, um, you know, I would buy Bitcoin or Ethereum today, and I probably will maybe again in the future. Um, I got a bit lost, you know, when you have all these, you know, thousands and thousands of, of altcoins available. So, you know, I, I never held more than 10 or 12. Um, but I would buy again, and I won't buy, though, until I know I can sort of hold maybe for five years or 10 years, you know. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's something that has... It's sort of perpetually curious to me because I don't understand it and things I don't understand, I inherently don't trust. I mean, I understand everything you're telling me. I mean, I, I don't know the details of the business and all that, but I understand it. It's actually backed by actual uh, hard metals, rare rare earth materials. Um, and that, you know, and then like steel, they don't naturally occur. You have to combine them or smelt them or whatever, whatever they do to, you know, there's some sort of chemical process to create them. The crypto, as far as I could tell, was just sort of based on a, a collective agreement and imagination that it may be worth something somewhere, someplace, uh, you know, and it almost like we people were uh, creating their own matrix. And a lot yeah. of people I met who were advocating it were afraid that we were in a matrix or someone else's. So they yeah. it seemed like they were creating their own safe haven matrix. Well, you're, you're right, though, Jeff. You are right, you know. Uh, but look, you know, what's the definition? Of currency, you know, what actually does is the definition. Fiat is a currency, right? But mm-hmm. you know, apples are a currency. You know, I mean, it's it's currency is anything that me and you agree on that we will accept in return for a service or another good or or currency. So, you know, what I there's two things struck me about Bitcoin. One, it has never been compromised. And anybody who bought Bitcoin or invested in Bitcoin from an early stage has made money. Now, exchanges have been compromised, but they're just banks. And Bitcoin itself has never been compromised. And the financial system hasn't had an up. The last major upheaval to the financial system was credit cards in the 50s or the 60s or whenever. So it is time this, you know, this new technology we have is going to create new ways of doing business and um I, there's just there's enough people out there that believe in it um especially the privacy of it or even at least the removal of the middleman you know you know i mean we all know bitcoin really came after the financial crash 2008 2009 and whoever created bitcoin wanted to create something where um it was true and honest and the blockchain is a true and honest i don't think Cryptocurrencies are have a cheap. Well, I don't. I don't think anybody has ever said this yet either. But um, they're not there yet. Bitcoin's not there yet. What they really want it to be is not there yet. I mean, you you know, it takes twenty minutes, half an hour, two hours to do a transaction. 
I mean, Visa are banging out, what, millions and billions of transactions per second. So they don't have that. But I think they'll probably get there, you know. But it could also all crash to zero. But, you know, currency can be a shared fiction, you know. But it can also be a shared reality, you know. So you're absolutely right what you said. It's sort of both at the moment. But I would still buy it because I know there's enough people trade it and believe in it. And it's worldwide. I mean, it's global, right? It, yeah, that, that's for sure. One of uh, one of the biggest, uh, a lot of the biggest advocates I know are people who are uh, overseas from me, uh, you know, and some of them are within seas for you, but also overseas and other places. So, all right. Well, thank you for uh, allowing me that, that digression, but I was just curious because it's, it just uh, sort of eternally fascinates me. All right. So if they want to find out information about you and your company, uh, how, how do they do so? Okay, so uh, our website is Strategic Metals Invest, uh, or anybody who listened in, uh, if they want to contact me directly, uh, my email is louis, L-O-U-I-S, at strategicmetalsinvest.com. Okay, wonderful. All right, well, thank you very much for sharing that information. Very interesting conversation. Um, it's, it sounds like it's almost a hedge against a world disorder, and you can almost always count on some sort of disorder, but even order uh, doesn't really hurt it as long as we're buying things that involve uh, chips and electronics and stuff like that. So, uh, unless we go back to living in caves and eating fruit, yeah, it's it's the demand is gonna is there, you know. But like, in fact, funny, just the last thing you said, you really touched on it as well. At the very very minimum, owning rare earths it's a, it's a good hedge against inflation and it's a good store of wealth. Now they have gone up a lot in value, but that doesn't mean they always will continue to go up so much in value, but you can rely on a good store of wealth, uh, just like sort of precious metals. Oh, I just put, I thought of another question. I'm sorry, I was about to let you go. But you, you said that you can buy, you know, in $10,000 blocks, but you could divide it up over metals. Is there anyone internally that helps somebody pick and choose those, or do you stay out of that? It's up to the consumer to decide that they want 10% of these 10 metals or 25% of these four. No, we usually, you know, myself or, you know, one of our our other um, staff in Frankfurt um, will run through, you know, for example, you could, if somebody likes a certain industry like defense metals or technology metals or energy transition metals, green metals, there's, you know, we can guide them in that direction or somebody, you know, wants one metal, but we recommend diversify, you know, by, you know, uh, four or five or eight different metals. That way, you're you're pretty much invested in all different industries. You're, it's a much safer way to do it, you know. But we yeah, we help people out with that. We we help educate. Excellent. All right. Well, once again, thank you very much for being on the show, and thanks you all, all for listening in. And uh, uh, you'll tune in again next time on Garden Views. And uh, I, like I try to remember every time, give us a rating, give us a review, but most importantly, subscribe and download and give referrals to your friends and loved ones because you never know what's going to tickle their fancy on these shows thanks one more one more time to our guest Louie O'Connor thank you very much for coming to us uh, from Ireland in US time because it's much later there than it is here and I, I thank you again for being on the show thank you Jeff 